Well, it's great to be back. Um, been looking forward to it for a long time since Jeff got in touch with me a couple of months ago and we were able to work it out. I was really happy to be. Uh, it was a little questionable whether I could make it at first, but it all worked out and I'm, I'm very glad to be back. I really enjoy the fellowship. It's already been already been great last night and then today. So I'm looking forward to this session. Um, just a little bit of my background. I think Jeff's told you everything, probably more than you need to know about me. Um, I am from originally from West Virginia. My wife is too. We uh, grew up there together in the same church, though we went very different directions. Uh, my wife uh, was a Christian at a very young age. It took quite a while for it to take with me. In fact, I ran in the opposite direction. Um, but then we ended up, uh, just a long story short, after I became a believer uh, in college, a couple years later I was speaking at a youth, it wasn't, well, it was a kind of a college retreat, and it was, on, uh, it was on Christian marriage, and it worked because six months later I was married, so whatever I said took, right, at least with me it did anyhow, um, so my wife and I uh, were married soon, <laughs> soon after that. Everybody's always surprised that it, takes six, it only took six months, but the only two, there's only two, well, one person, there's two, there's two beings, I should say. Who, uh, who, who like long engagements. One, future mother-in-laws, because they can hold them to their daughter longer. And two, the devil, right? Because the longer the engagement, the more, the more trouble you're likely to get into, right? So uh, I kind of went against the devil and my future mother-in-law, and uh, all at the same time, not connecting them at all. Um, not at all. And uh, yeah, we need to expunge the tape on that part. Um, and got married really early, and then uh, after not long after that, I did a pastoral internship, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and I went to Wheaton for a conference with the guy I was doing the internship with, and there was a, a fellow there, uh, we had the conference right across the street at College Church, and he said, well, you, know, you could come to Wheaton, and that seemed like a good idea, and that's about as much thought as I put into it, and we moved to Wheaton, and that was supposed to be it. For me, that was I'm done. I didn't even really want to do that. Uh, sort of three degrees later, you know, I'm at Southern Seminary. That's the short version. Uh, but the way God worked it out, I mean, you know, just like I mean, I'm sure we all have a similar story. If I had, if I, if I had to plan, if I had to plan it ahead of time, I would never would have planned it the way it happened. Um, not ever. And there were several times I tried to radically change things. It didn't work. But in God's providence. You know, all those little steps, many of which were con- absolutely contrary to what I wanted to do, uh, but sometimes didn't have a choice or just, you know, ended up in certain situations. You know, all those things ended up um, ended up in God's providence working out for me, ultimately just sort of being here today, you know, just like, just like all of us. Uh, so today my topic is uh, Romans 4. Um, what's the title? Is exa- what's the title exactly? That's a bad sign when the speaker asks, "What's what am I speaking on?" Um, the title, though, I'm pretty sure has imputation in it. I hope it does. Yeah, imputation, forgiveness, and letting Paul speak. Well, I'm pretty. That's broad enough that I can basically say just about anything on Romans four. But what I want to do today is talk about in the first session is focus on Romans four and the, the topic of imputation. Um, but then I also want to put it in the context of allowing, if we can use that word, a text to speak for itself. 
I think this is really, this is extraordinarily important. Nowhere more important than in preaching. Um, that we come to a text and we allow that text to say what it has to say. Um, if you have a love of theology, and a, which you obviously do, and you know, and a love for doctrine, it can start to be easy to kind of see things whether they're there or not. And to make connections whether they're there or not. And you can always sort of back up and say, well, you know, in the larger biblical context, which is good to do. We need to be able to read the Bible as a, as a, as one thing. I mean, I, part of my job description is biblical theology. So I'm all about how, how to put the Bible together and think about how the Bible sort of interprets itself and how to read the text together. But it can be easy, I think, when we have a love for theology, and especially if we have a love for particular doctrines, like sort of whatever our thing is. Um, say justification. May as well use that as an example since I'm going to talk about that quite a bit. Um, if we, if we have a particular doctrine that we really hold to and, and say we're studying a lot about it and it, 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 it can be, it can become easy to see that doctrine everywhere. And so, you know, you see sort of something about it in a text and then when you're preaching or teaching, you're sort of import everything that there is to say about that doctrine into that text. And, you know, there, there, there's, a, there's a place for that, like when we're doing systematic theology or if we're, if we're speaking thematically or something. But I think in the normal course of teaching and preaching, when we're going through sort of systematically going through a, a book of the Bible, we have, to, we have to step back and say, okay, the, what I'm preaching on is connected to many, many things. But I, I can't let the background become the foreground, if that makes sense, in preaching. Because there's always a background, and sometimes we have a tendency, if we have certain things that we like, to bring those things to the foreground in such a way that if, if, if somebody heard us, without hearing us, nobody would have ever seen those things in that particular text before. And so I, I, think, I think we need to be careful. And this is, this is especially true, I think, with a doctrine like imputation, and then, uh, which is, you know, sort of a, which is a, a part of, not the whole thing, but a part of, of justification. In, in every, in every, in every uh, generation since the Reformation and before, um, or around, I guess, there have been people who look at a doctrine like imputation and they say, you know, it's not really in the Bible the way that you have formulated it. This goes way back. Um, this was a debate that this was a debate that uh, that uh, Melanchthon, Luther's sort of lieutenant, right? The guy who worked alongside with Luther, and then, of course, after Luther died, uh, Philip Melanchthon became kind of the center of the development of Lutheran theology, and many of the Lutheran statements, like the confessions and things, those go to Philip Melanchthon. Uh, he was involved with in debates with uh, a guy who doesn't matter what his name was, Piscator, and it was all about sort of this sort of imputation of Christ's righteousness. And... It, it's often been pointed out, it's often been pointed out again in every generation that, you know, it's not, people have said it's not really in the Bible the way you're saying that it is. Um, and I, I think if, if there's an ongoing charge, if there's an ongoing a charge from people that says, I don't, I don't understand where you're getting this in the Bible, and if that happens in sort of succeeding generations, I think that, that should get our attention, that there, maybe there's something to what's being said. Without, I mean, I don't agree with it not being in the Bible. At least I hope not. If I did, I wrote a whole book that's a lie. But at the same time, if something comes up over and over and over again, and it's the same sort of charge, then I think we should be able to be humble enough to step back and say, okay, 
there must be something to this, right? There must be something about either the way we're saying it or the way that people are reading it or refusing to read it that we need to look at it. But we have a number of options. So if somebody comes and says a doctrine like imputation, and we'll talk more about what that is exactly in a minute, and says it's, it's not really in the Bible, we have, there's a number of responses. Uh, the first response, and I hear this a lot, is just to kind of scoff and say, that's ridiculous. Of course it's in the Bible. Well, that sort of response has never really won too many people over to any sort of position. But it's easy to kind of have a gut reaction like that. Another response is to kind of fire back, say, a series of confessional or historical statements about it. So somebody says, you know, imputation is not in the Bible, and then you maybe just define imputation. Um, That's one way to do it. Um, And then sort of start drawing the lines really tight, who's in and who's out depending on who makes what statements. Uh, many people, what they've done at the end of is they've bought into the idea that, you know, it's not really in the Bible the way it appears in some sort of historical uh, Protestant confessions. Um, fourth option is we can take the tack that all of a sudden it appears everywhere, whether it's, whether it's, whether it's there or not. Um, and then sort of the fifth thing we can do and this is what I'd like to do, is that is we can take sort of the criticism seriously and go back and check out what the Bible says and, you know, take the position that, you know what, um, my, my theology, my doctrine is subject to the Word of God alone, only. Uh, and my theology doesn't sort of circumscribe the Bible. The Bible is, the, the Bible is what circumscribes my theology. And so let's, let's, let's take a step back. And so what I'm going to do is talk about imputation generally. And then we're going to look specifically at a couple of things in Romans 4 uh, that can be, uh, that have been over the years kind of hard to deal with. So first, let's start off with a simple question. Um, is the word imputation, is it a biblical word? Well, it is. It is very much a biblical word. Uh, it often, though, doesn't get it often doesn't get translated as imputation. Sometimes, what you have is the word "counted" will be used, like in as in Romans four. Um, let's read the text together. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him. As righteousness. So there's the word, counted. Sometimes the word is reckoned. It's not all that often, though, that the word that we use often theologically, imputed, is the translation. But it's the same word for for counted, for counted to be righteous. And, of course, Paul didn't make up this word. He didn't uh, just coin it himself. He's quoting Genesis 15, 6, right, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And we'll talk about what it was exactly that was counted to him. Um. But then, so you can look at that and say, well, how could anybody say the doctrine of imputation is not actually in the Bible? Well, it's not really whether so much the doctrine, generally speaking, it's what does the doctrine mean? Because in typical, in in many, uh, and I think this is right, in many uh, reformational, uh, Protestant reformational uh, formulations, imputation is thought of as two things, the forgiveness of sins and and the counting of Christ's positive righteousness, or his, his, his obedience, his pos, sometimes what's called positive obedience, or active obedience. I'll have a lot to say about that in this session and in the next one. 
And so people have looked at this and they've read the text and said, it kind of looks like it's about forgiveness. And, and not this idea of sort of this imputation of an active kind of righteousness. And I'll, I'll show you why they say that in a minute and why there's, and why there's something to it. So he goes on. Um, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Sounds like forgiveness. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Sounds like forgiveness. And so that's, that's, uh, that's Psalm 32. That's where Paul goes to Psalm 32 to say, hey, here's what I mean, by the way. Here's what it means. Here's what Genesis 15, 6 means. Because here's what, here's what David said. And so I think one of the things that can, one of the things we can get in trouble doing when we're defending a doctrine like imputation is sort of fall into the same trap that people who criticize it do. And that is we can come to a text, um, we can come to a text and and uh, look at it and say, well, here, you know, it's, it's all there, right? So we can, we can, we can misread the text in, a, in an effort to defend it. We can read too much into a text, just like in an effort to sort of uh, tear it down, the doctrine, people can read too little into a text. But I don't think we have to choose one of those two options. Uh, and, but too often, and this is, this is true, especially in debates, uh, we, have a, we have a tendency to come and sort of pour everything into a text. Um, and I think, I think we have to step back and say, you know what, a doctrine like imputation, even Romans 4, which is the clearest sort of of all the imputation texts, it's probably the, the center of it, the whole doctrine doesn't reside in Romans 4. And the important thing for teaching and preaching is it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. Because in every text, in every text, there's a foreground and a background. There's what's in the text itself. And then there's sort of the background information. And we, I think we have to be careful, specifically in, in teaching and preaching, that we don't swap the two. Sort of either unknowingly or, you know, never sort of secretly. But I think we have to be careful that we don't swap the two things and make the whole sort of biblical systematic background the foreground. Because then we, when we do, I think people come to a doctrine like imputation. And that's what causes people to say, I just don't, I don't see it. And it says, it says, forgiven, sins are covered. The Lord will not count his sin. I don't, I don't see this positive imputation or this imputation of Christ's active obedience or positive righteousness or whatever you want to call it. So I, I, think, we, I, think, we need to be, I think we need to be careful. So Paul comes to Abraham in Romans 4 to show that his doctrine of justification is not new. It's not novel. It's the way God has always it's the, way, it's the way God has always worked uh, in regard to his people. And so he goes back to Genesis 15, 6, which, by the way, is the first appearance, the first, the first explicit appearance of the word faith, believe, is in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the first time the word appears. Now, it's not the first time faith appears because you can see it, you know, you can see it in the life of Abraham before Genesis 15, 6 when he gets up and, and leaves his home. Right? So you see faith in action. Right? So the narrative is teaching faith clearly, 
But the word itself doesn't, doesn't appear until it is paired specifically with this word righteousness, which has already sort of been established in the text. So this word counted, um, what do we make of it? Let's talk about the word, let's talk about the word counted. Well, it's a similar, it's a word that's used in different ways in the scripture. Paul uses it in kind of like a financial way. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But for instance, for instance, uh, one of the ways, one of the main ways the word counted is used in scripture is when you count sort of one thing for another. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Laban. Laban counted his own daughters to be foreigners. So in his eyes, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't become foreigners. They weren't foreigners. But he counts them, he treats them as though they're foreigners. But they're not, in reality, foreigners. Um, and this is, this is my favorite one. In Proverbs 27, 14, uh, a loud early morning blessing spoken to a friend will be counted as a curse to the person who's woken up by it. Right? So, you know, some ultra-pious guy wakes up and says, this is the day the Lord has made, and somebody's trying to sleep, and they're like, yeah, give it a rest. I'm trying to sleep right now. And so it becomes sort of a curse to him, right? So it's, it's just too early. That's the way I take it in that text. Um, and so it's not a curse, but the person who is, I guess, woken up by it too early or whatever is going on would, would count it as a curse. Um, in the same way, uh, Shimei, when he comes to David, he says, hey, don't count my guilt towards me. Um, he wants him to, because re- he's guilty. And he says, but, you know, don't count my guilt towards me, but rather count me as innocent. Right? So that's, that's one of the ways it's used. And I think that's the way Paul is using it. So what God does is he, God looks at Abraham, who is ungodly, and counts him to be righteous. Right? I think that's, that's sort of the nuts and bolts, sort of the bare bones idea of what imputation means in this text. That God takes the, God looks at the ungodly, ungodly Abraham, and he counts him, not to be ungodly, but to be righteous in his sight. And then Paul goes on to describe that. Paul goes on to describe that as um, forgiveness, or at least emphasize it here. So, as we begin, as we keep looking at Abraham, let's just think about what's being said here. Paul begins, he's, he, you know, Paul has established his doctrine of justification by faith in Romans 3, and he says, so what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our fourth father, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God, right? So what Paul is doing, he's contrasting works on one hand and faith on the other. And he's saying, this goes way back. I'm not making this up. This is something familiar. This should be familiar to everybody I'm writing to. I didn't just create this out of thin air. Um, what I'm saying that what, what my gospel, my gospel is, what I'm saying in my gospel is what God has said all along. And that is, it is by faith and not by works. And everybody can agree with that. Everybody can agree that that's what's going on. The rub comes in exactly what does it mean here in Romans 4 to be imputed with righteousness or counted as righteous. Um, given that Paul quotes Psalm 32, that's sort of the tricky part. Um, but so Paul, you know, Paul's basically giving this, uh, Paul's basically drawing, a, drawing a, uh, a picture from, say, how business works, right? Um, if somebody's justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but what's due, right? So, I mean, it's sort of like this. If you have a, if you have a job and Friday comes, you pick up your paycheck, you don't typically pick up your paycheck and go to your boss and say, man, I really appreciate this gift of a paycheck. You know, it's really gonna, it's really gonna help me out. 
No, it comes to you because, it comes to you why? Because you earned it. Because you earned it. And what Paul's saying is that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works sort of in, in God's economy. It is imputed to you. It's given to you purely, only, solely as a gift. Now again, virtually everybody can agree on that. Right? But the issue comes, so what is it? What is this reckoning? What is this reckoning of righteousness? Um, so let's, let's take a step back and think about justification more broadly. I mean, and and we'll, we'll sort of get, we'll keep working our way there. The doctrine of imputation is not the same thing as justification, right? They're not synonyms. Um, imputation is the way righteousness is counted to us, but justification is the declaration, God's declaration, that, that through the work of God in Christ, we stand before him guiltless and as those who have fulfilled everything required to be righteous in his sight. It's a declaration that God makes. God declares us to be righteous, right? And that's, that's justification. Now, the imputation is kind of the nuts and bolts of it. Imputation is how we receive that righteousness through faith. Right? So justification is the declaration that we're righteous. Imputation, on the other hand, imputation, as I said, is kind of like, again, I think is the way I always refer to it is kind of the nuts and bolts. It's how it becomes ours. It is, it is counted to us um, as purely as a gift. And so, you know, we need to be careful, though, when we start talking about imputation, that we don't describe it in kind of, uh, we don't describe it in, just in terms of sort of numbers or like a commodity. Um, and this often, this sometimes happens. It's not as though, it's not as though there's sort of like this bank of righteousness, like First National Bank of Heaven, where there is a, Jesus has put in, Jesus has, has, has put in a big sort of sum of righteousness. When you become a Christian, you become a believer, some of that righteousness is taken from that and then given to you. Sometimes in the history of Protestant theology, people have referred to something called a storehouse of merit. Well, I understand what that means. What, you know, and what that means is, is there's a never-ending, there's a never-ending store of righteousness for all who believes. But that's not exactly the way the Bible talks about it. The Bible doesn't talk about the imputation of righteousness being sort of a, just a transfer, like a sort of a numbers from one account to another. We have to remember that imputation, first and foremost, is about a person. It's about a righteousness that we receive because it is Christ's own righteousness, not a commodity. And that's, I think that's an important, that's an important thing to think about as we're thinking about how, how we talk about imputation, is it, it doesn't come to us, it, you know, it's not like here's, here's Jesus, here's us, here's sort of righteousness, if you could hold it in your hand, and he sort of gives it to you, and then you take it home with you. The righteousness that is imputed is Christ himself. But sometimes we speak of it, though, as if it's like, here, here's righteousness. But it doesn't exist apart from Jesus, and it always remains His righteousness, even when it becomes our, when it, even when it becomes our own. So I think we need to be careful. We need to be careful about the way we talk about it. And sometimes, sometimes the way we talk about it, like that, calling it sort of like a storehouse of merit or something, is the kind of thing that people hear and say, "I don't, I don't get it. I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't see that in the text." And one of the reasons I don't see it in the text is because that's really not the way that the Bible talks about it. I mean, I understand why I can, I mean, we can use lots of, we can use lots of illustrations. That's fine. We just have to be careful that the illustration doesn't sort of become the thing itself. And then when people hear an illustration like that, they look at the Bible and say, it kind of looks like he's talking about, you know, forgiveness of sins. 
I don't, I don't sort of see this sort of transfer of like this commodity of righteousness. And so, you know, again, we, I think if we step back and look and think about the way we talk about it, we can maybe sometimes see why somebody might say, yeah, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. So sometimes, maybe, not always, but sometimes the fault may, at least in part, lie with the way we talk about it. It doesn't make the doctrine wrong, but it, it, you know, we have to, I think we have to ask, you know, has something, have I said something that is not clear? If I formulated some doctrine in, su- in such a way that it doesn't really reflect what the Bible says, that's always a possibility, right? And so we, I think that's the first step we want, first step we want to take. So let's start breaking imputation down just a little bit. In the doctrine of imputation, theologians for centuries have talked about both a positive and a negative side. Now, negative, of course, doesn't mean something bad. It's like a battery. There's a positive side and a negative side, right? You need both sides. And um, so people have talked about, you know, and what happens in imputation is your sins are forgiven and you're counted with this sort of positive standing of righteousness before God, which is Christ's righteousness. And it's connected it's connected to the idea uh, that I'll talk about more later in the Romans 5 session, um, soon after this session's over. It's connected to this idea that we sometimes talk about Jesus' active and passive obedience. Right? The, the idea being that Jesus' active obedience in his life and then is, is counted to us, and that's sort of the positive imputation. And then the, you know, the, the negative side, which again, I wish there was something else to use besides positive and negative because it sounds positive and negative. But the negative side is the forgiveness of sins, which we get from Jesus' so-called passive obedience on the cross. And that's how, you know, that's how the two things are connected. Now, the fact of the matter is, is you can't really have one without the other. You, you, the, way, the, way, the way that God's justification works, the way that salvation works, is there's not sort of like this state where you're, oh, he's forgiven, but not given this positive state of righteousness. Or, or, the, or the reverse, you can't separate. The two things cannot ever be separated. And so we, you know, we want to make sure we keep them together. I think there's a good reason why they can't be separated. And it goes back to this, this uh, idea of Jesus' so-called active and passive obedience, which we'll, I'll talk about again in Romans 5. Um, I can understand what that means. I just don't think it's the best way to talk about it, as though Jesus had two kinds of obedience. Right? I believe in it. I better say this now so people will come back. I believe in it, it's just we have to be careful that we don't think of Jesus' obedience as being, oh, this is a positive piece of obedience, this is an act of obedience, this is a piece of, this is a piece of passive obedience. There's no, you can't have one without the other. I don't want to give everything away for later, so I'm going to save that. I have a really good illustration for it, so you want to come back for the illustration. Um, but the same thing, all I'm saying is we can't separate them. And we, and we need to be careful that we don't speak of them in such a way that gives the impression that we sort of look at them as two different things. Right? Again, what this goes, what this does, though, is it, I think, sometimes reflects the fact that we do think of righteousness and imputation and justification as sometimes just a mere transaction, rather than remembering that the justification, imputation, it's, it's incarnational. It comes to us, again, in a person whom we are connected to by faith and not as, again, a product. And righteousness is not a product. It's a standing that we have before God. And so, I think we just, we just want to be careful. So, in this text, right, so, um, it, the key word here, as I've said, is this word counted, which goes back to Genesis 15, 6. Um, 
And so what Paul is saying here is, right, here's how you're, here's how you're righteous before God. You're counted righteous before God on the basis of one thing alone, or by one thing alone, not the basis of, but by one thing alone, and that is faith. Now, this has caused some people to describe uh, imputation or faith as sort of in the new covenant, faith is the new work. In the old covenant, it was works. In the new covenant, it's faith. But I don't think that's the way Paul is speaking of it. I don't think he's talking about faith as some kind of work. I don't think faith replaces works. So that in the new covenant, it's just belief. That's the thing that's rewarded. I don't think that's right. I don't think it's right that faith, in the, it's, it, you know, in the old covenant, you worked. In the new covenant, you believe. Of course, that's true. But I, I don't think it's the, I don't think faith is the thing that is what makes us righteous. Faith is the thing that connects us to what makes us righteous. And I think that, you know, that makes all the difference in the world. Because remember, Paul is contrasting two different things. He's contrasting earning and receiving as a gift. And that's, that's at the basis of what he's doing. You either earn something or you receive something in the gift. And so if you, if you receive something, if you, either whether you earn it by works or you earn it by faith, it's still earning. And that's what Paul denies. Paul denies that you earn righteousness in any way. And again, of course, obviously you can't earn it by works, but at the same time, you don't earn righteousness by faith. Because faith is not a work. It's not sort of the new work. It isn't. You don't earn it in any, in any way. Your faith doesn't earn you righteousness. So if we if, notice what he says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What was? Not his faith in and of itself, but specifically his faith in God. Because it's, it's, it's his faith, it, it's the object of faith is the thing that is the, is from is that's that's the place from which we are counted righteous. It's the object of faith, not faith itself. So faith is an instrument that connects us to our righteousness. And so that's see that's a different way that's a different way that Christians need to talk about faith. That's different from say the way the sort of secular world talks about faith. When you hear about somebody being, well, you know, he's a person of faith. Well, that might be good, but it might not mean anything. Because sometimes when I hear, say, you know, somebody's describing a politician or a public figure, say, well, you know, it's a, he's a person of faith. I think, well, or, or somebody say, you know, it's my faith that got me through. And I think, well, that, that sounds potentially good. But sometimes what we do is we'll talk about faith, but then we just sort of emphasize the person who somehow has this sort of faith. For the Christian, it's never just faith, ever. It is faith. Now, this might sound like I'm splitting hairs, but it makes all the difference in the world. For the Christian, it is faith in Jesus. And that makes it, that's totally different than just saying, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a person of faith. Because eight times out of ten, when somebody says, well, I don't know, I don't have numbers on this. A lot of times, when people say they're a person of faith, what they end up talking about is themselves. And how they've persevered, and, you know, it's, it's good to persevere. I'm not just trying to be critical, um, but, but Paul doesn't separate faith from its object. And that is why, what Paul's talking about here, that is why faith doesn't sort of become the new work in the new covenant. God still, it is by faith, God still counts us as righteous because we believe in him. And that is where our righteousness comes from. Our righteousness doesn't come from our faith. Okay? So again, this is, a lot of this is just, a lot of this is just background. I could give you a lot of text for that, but I, I'm not going to. We need to 
we need to move. We mean we need to move on. Okay. So I've laid sort of a lot of groundwork. I've said a lot of different things. Um, we come to the text. It says, you know, it says counted as righteousness. But then, so what is what is what is going on here with this text? Let's just think about it as we're reading it, and let's go now and turn our attention to the bottom part of the text in verse six and following. So Paul comes and he quotes Psalm thirty-two. Now, when Paul quotes an Old Testament text, it is not usually to add something sort of in addition to what he's been what he's been saying. He says one thing and he sort of adds a text. What he typically does is he quotes an Old Testament text to say, see, this is what I'm talking about. This is, this is, what, this is exactly what I'm getting at. And so, so he's talking about this idea of imputation. And then he talks about imputation according to David in Psalm 32. And he says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous. Right? Okay, here, think about it. Just, just listen to the words. David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. Now, now he's going to go and unpack that. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covering, covered, and, uh, and the man, and blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What is emphasized in that text more than anything else? That is pretty clear. Forgiveness. Right? I mean, there's almost no way to look at that text and not say, wow, Paul's really talking about forgiveness here. But yet we know, based on, you know, what, what, what we, but yet we know that when we talk about imputation, we don't mean just forgiveness. We mean a positive standing, right? And, and so, but when we come to this, this text in Romans 4, what is Paul emphasizing? In the foreground is forgiveness. That's what's in the foreground. That's what Paul spends more time, at least at least in this quote from the psalm, that's what he spends more time talking about than anything else in this text, is forgiveness. And this is what has caused, I think wrongly, some people to say, you know what, justification is the forgiveness of sins. Or, or you know, sort of a, kind of a subset of that, imputation is God forgiving your sins. That's what it means to be imputed with righteousness, is you are forgiven. And this has been, uh, there's been lots of people in the history of church that have said that, and people down to today, there's the, these debates constantly sort of raging on about this very question, and that is, people saying, they just read a text like this, they just read it, and say, looks like forgiveness to me, right? Paul, Paul goes into all this, Paul goes into this thing about Abraham, and how he's counted to be righteous, and then he quotes Psalm 32, and it's all about forgiveness. So therefore, imputation must be about what, in this, in this view? Forgiveness. And so that's, 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 so I'm finally kind of getting back to where I, where I began. I just wanted to kind of lay the groundwork for a little, for a little bit. Um, but you know, so Paul comes and he, and he quotes, he quotes Genesis, sorry, Psalm 32. It looks like it's all forgiveness. And I think what we see right off the bat is we have this doctrine of imputation, right? And, and I'm going to talk about it more. Um, but the whole doctrine itself, even in Romans 4, is in the background. What's in the foreground is what Paul is specifically emphasizing here, and that is the forgiveness of sins. They're not equally there. That's really the only point I'm trying to make. They're not equally there. And so I think when we come and preach and teach a text like this, we don't have to make them equally there. And one of the reasons that we often open ourselves up to a charge that a doctrine like imputation is really not biblical is we'll present a text like this and preach as though Paul speaks just as clearly 
about the imputation of what we call positive righteousness and forgiveness, but he doesn't. He doesn't speak about them equally clearly in this one particular text. And I think that's what that gets back to this idea of sort of letting the text speak for itself and just letting Paul letting Paul say what he says. So that's I think again that's in the that's that's what's in the foreground and that's what we need to that's what we need to emphasize. Jeff, what time is the session over? One fifteen officially. Oh, that thing on the wall with the hands on it. All right, I mean, okay. All right. Yeah, <laughs> you could. If you could, yeah. For the second session, I'd like a clock that's much bigger. Actually, it's maybe one without Roman numerals, so I can read it. <laughs> All right, sorry. That was just a little aside here between Jeff and I. So, we come to this text. Now, so what do we do? What do we do when we come to a text like this, where Paul so clearly is emphasizing forgiveness? I mean... You know, commenting on this text, Luther looked at this text and said, for Paul, justification is the forgiveness of sins. Here's what no less than Calvin says. By these words, he's talking about Romans 4, by these words, we also learn that righteousness for Paul is nothing other than the remission of sins. We are therefore left with the glorious statement that he who is cleansed before God by the free remission of sins is justified by faith. That's Calvin. Let me read that again. He who is cleansed before God by the free remission of sins is justified by faith. And he doesn't qualify it at all. And he didn't feel the need to. John Murray. He speaks of Paul's sort of restricted interest in Romans 4. And he notes that in the text, justification is parallel to, and then in his words, if not defined in terms of the remission of sins. That's John Murray. So you have Luther, Calvin, John Murray. They all look at Romans 4 and they say, that's about forgiveness. They even say, justification means you're forgiven. So... The thing that the thing that I think that we need to understand, though, is that in the case of both Calvin and, and Murray, they didn't believe that the whole of justification was forgiveness. And it's really clear that they didn't. It's just when they're reading Romans 4, and they want to emphasize what Paul is talking about in Romans 4, they can say something that it's... In lots of circles, you could preach in lots of places where if you got in the pulpit and said, it's clear that justification is the forgiveness of sins, eyebrows would go up all over the place. Because immediately some people would hear you as denying the full doctrine of imputation. When really you're just making the same comment that, say, Calvin and Murray and Luther and many other people made. And the, the difference is, is when we're teaching preaching, whether we're going to emphasize what's in the foreground or what's in the background. And allow, uh, just sort of allow the text to speak for itself and realize that when we, you know, in most cases when we're preaching, we don't have to say everything that's there. Just like we don't have to come to a text that preaches the importance of obedience. Uh, here's something, here's, uh, here's an analogy. We'll come to a text sometimes and preach the importance of obedience and spend half our time talking about how you're not saved by obedience. To protect it, Right? So in order to protect justification by faith sometimes, when we preach a text about obedience, we'll spend the whole time reminding people about justification by faith alone. Now, it's good. We need to do that. It's important when we come to a text that we also... We we need to teach what a text does not mean. That's part of teaching what it means. 
but we can't emphasize it to the point where we make every text just about what it's not, simply because we're afraid that if we don't, we might sort of kind of expose some kind of doctrine or, or hang it out there, you know, where it could be attacked. But, what, but the glorious thing is we have this whole entire Bible. So even for a doctrine like imputation, we have this, we have this whole entire Bible where we don't have to truck the whole doctrine into Romans 4. Because all the things I said about imputation earlier, about it being a positive standing, well, it's true. When God counts somebody as righteous, when God counts somebody as righteous, that means that, it doesn't mean, think about it this way. Think about it as a ledger. Think about it as a ledger. If God counts somebody as righteous, he counts somebody as having done everything that he requires, right? Everything that's pleasing to him for doing his will. And think about it this way. If you have a company, if you have a company and you have sort of an investment, say, um, let me put it in simple terms, simple money. This is for my for my benefit. I need round numbers. I need small numbers. Somehow you have a business and you know you have you have two thousand dollars invested in it. And you know the first year the first year of of uh, business you earn you know sort of fifteen hundred dollars. Well, you know you're still owing. So say the second second year you bring it up and you you break even, right? Well, you're just you're even. You haven't gained a profit. You're just right in the middle. Now, the third year, you come in and you earn, you know, you need to make $2,000 to break even. You make $2,001. Now, all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, you've made a profit, right? Now, all of a sudden, you have a po- you're in the positive side of the ledger, right? And that's, that's how it works. When God counts us as being righteous, he doesn't just count us as our sins forgiven in neutral. He gives us the status that we've fulfilled everything. We're not just sort of in the middle. But the thing is, is we know that from reading the Bible, sort of the Bible, the, the larger context of the Bible, not from any one specific text, like even Romans 4. Now, the, the thing is, it's not that far in the background. If you go read the context of, say, even Psalm 32, if you go read the context of Psalm 32, David speaks of the righteous one who is upright. And the person who is upright is not just somebody who's in neutral with no sin, it's the person that God counts as being in a positive relationship with him, who has, who has fulfilled all righteousness. But again, that's in the background. That's in the background. That's in the background of Psalm 32. Now, it's the context of Psalm 32, but what Paul quotes, what Paul cites in Romans 4, what Paul cites in Romans 4 is, the, is what, sorry, what he, what he cites emphasizes forgiveness. And I think that's that's really important that we that we be able to do that. And I, and I think sometimes because of a tendency, a tendency to want to see everything in a text like this is what causes some people to say, I, just, I don't I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand. It says forgiveness like three times. Where does this other thing come from? Well, the thing is, is we can make a I, I think a convincing case can be made that imputation is not just the forgiveness of sins. But I just don't think we have to feel under any kind of pressure to make it more than that than when we're preaching, say, Romans 4. Because there's, there's an implication. That's what it is. It's in the background. But when, I think in the typical work of preaching, we want to preach what's in the foreground so that when we're preaching to people and you're reading the text and explaining it, it's not, we don't completely hear, man, I just never would have seen that at all. Sometimes 
sometimes that is a good thing because you you know you've opened you've opened somebody's understanding, opened their eyes to see what's going on. But sometimes when somebody says, "I never would have seen that if you hadn't told me," that might not be really a compliment at the end of the day. It could mean because it really well, it just wasn't there. That's why you know why you never saw it is it wasn't there. I just made it there. And so, you know, that's what that's so that's sort of step one. And we come to Romans 4, and that is, yes, yes, we have this glorious doctrine of the imputation of righteousness. And you cannot be righteous righteous before God without having a positive standing before him. But at the same time, to be faithful, I think, and true to the Bible and teaching and preaching, we need to just let the text say what it says and let it sit with that. Hopefully with the understanding of this is not the last sermon I'll ever preach. Right? Maybe in the providence of God it will be. But if it, if it is, somebody else will come along and preach also. Right? So none of us are under the, so none of us, I think, should feel like we're under pressure when we get into the pulpit to say everything there is to say in an effort to either protect a doctrine or to make sure somebody doesn't get the wrong idea. You know, I mean, and to such an extent that we don't really just allow the text to speak. And I think that's one of the things, that's one of the things that can happen. Now, there's another thing that happens in terms of forgiveness, and this has happened historically. Sometimes the way we speak of forgiveness as Protestants in their sort of a reformational trajectory, sometimes the way we speak of forgiveness kind of belies the fact that practically we think it's good, obviously, but it's not maybe what we emphasize all the time. For instance, one time not long ago I heard a guy... It's been a while back, praying. And he must have said the imputation of Christ's righteousness in this prayer like 15 times. Along with every other point of theology that exists. It's really a lecture more than a prayer. And, and it lasted really about as long as a lecture. But the guy, I mean, I felt sorry for him. He was in a context where I'm sure he felt under pressure to make sure he said everything right. But he just kept talking about imputation of Christ's righteousness. I'm like, I'm on board, completely on board. I don't know who you're lecturing. I don't know if you're sort of lecturing the Bible back to God or what you're doing, but he was talking about it. But he never, ever, ever mentioned forgiveness. Now, in, when you pray, you don't have to mention everything. But the thing that struck me was the number of times he repeated the imputation of Christ's righteousness and how God, you know, we have this positive thing, but he never, he never mentioned forgiveness. The fact of the matter is, is practically speaking, because sometimes of a, because sometimes of, def, of a defense of a sort of reformed view of imputation, we can end up giving forgiveness short shrift. When in fact, in terms of salvation, the Bible has more to say about forgiveness than anything else in terms of being right before God. Right? It's not all the Bible says, but more texts emphasize forgiveness than anything else. So Romans 4 isn't alone in, 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 this, in this sort of way. And we can sort of give, sometimes I'll hear this phrase, um, We'll say, you know, you're not justified by mere forgiveness. Now, a couple centuries ago, two or three centuries ago, somebody could have said, you're not justified by mere forgiveness, and people would have heard that in a right way. But just be honest with me. If, if I, if I use, if you use, when, if you ever even use the word mere, when do you use it? Yeah, it's like, it's just, yeah, we, yeah, we, we were like like the word like only or something like, you know it's just a I mean I, this isn't the way I like for for lunch I had a mere granola bar, which is true today. Um, what do you, what do you hear when I say that? Wait, well, what you hear is I had a granola bar, but it wasn't enough, right? It was it was just a just a granola bar, 
And so when we use the word mere as in mere forgiveness, that's what people hear in the 21st century. Now, three centuries ago, people would have heard mere forgiveness as not forgiveness alone. But not today. Not today. The word mere means like measly. This is a measly granola bar you have for lunch. And that's kind of the way the word mere means today. And so I think we need to be careful that we don't use sort of sort of old descriptions that no longer really describe the reality. Right? So somebody like somebody like John Owen could have said mere forgiveness. But when John Owen said it, when in his day, it would mean something different than if I walk into a pulpit, and I'm, not that I'm John Owen, walk into a pulpit and say, well, it's just mere forgiveness. Because most people are going to hear that as, no, it's just forgiveness. It's not really the, even maybe the most important thing. It's just a part of things. Um, so, we, so we need to be careful. But in the Bible, forgiveness is central. And we need to embrace that. We can, we can defend the doctrine of imputation all day long, and we should. And I'm going to talk, this is sort of part one of, of two parts. We're going to talk about the, the source of that righteousness in the next talk. So these two talks sort of go together. So I'm not trying to say everything at once. But we can, we, we can and we should defend the full doctrine of imputation as both forgiveness and um, being counted as having fulfilled everything that pleases God, having done his will, having fulfilled all of his commands, and, and being counted as such like that. But at the same time, we need to embrace the fact that the Bible speaks of forgiveness in overflowing terms and, and never, ever downplays it. So, for instance, um, in the Old Testament, God is first and foremost presented as the God who forgives. God reveals himself to Moses. God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, and he declares that he forgives iniquities, and he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. When the Israelites would bring a when an Israelite Israelite would bring a sacrifice forward in the temple, and say a bull was sacrificed as a sin offering for the nation, the priest would make atonement. The 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 the, the refrain is, "And their sins shall be forgiven." Right. So, in order to mend sort of ongoing in this ongoing uh, practice of mending this relationship with God, it's forgiveness that mends the mends m e n d s the uh, the uh, relationship, the future. For Israel, the future for God's people is spoken of in terms of forgiveness. Jeremiah 31, 34. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Again, it's forgiveness. It's forgiveness. And it's not, it's not just, oh, just forgiveness. It's never, well, it's just forgiveness. But don't forget, there's also a positive standing. Well, of course there is. But we don't always have to tack that on and make it sound like, well, forgiveness is good when you can get it. But, have you heard the real story? And that is, you know, you're imputed with positive righteousness. Well, you are. But the two things can't exist apart from one another. They really can't. And we just have to, we have to be careful. And I think what we want to do is emphasize what the Bible emphasizes. Now, it's not as though, you know, you come to the New Testament, it's no longer for, uh, emphasis on forgiveness. It is. It is. I mean, a text like Romans 4, another, another great imputation text, 1 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.21, made him sin who knew no sin so we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's about forgiveness. It emphasizes forgiveness. And so when we come to a text like that, we, we need to let the text speak for itself, right? And now, and when we get to, I'm going to talk about Romans 5 in a little bit, and we'll see where this sort of positive, the positive part of justification comes from. 
right? But here, just in Romans 4, I, I just really wanted to emphasize, you know, let's emphasize what the Bible says. And too often, too often on both sides of these debates, I've heard people on sort of the negative, the negative, the critical side saying, it's just not in the Bible. And they'll go to a text like Romans 4, and they'll say, you see, it's not all there. And then, but then I've, I've, I've seen people, I've seen people uh, defend it, and they'll come to a text like Romans 4 and say, it's all there. And of course, so nobody, there's nobody really gets, there's nobody makes any headway. Um, but I think if we, if we step back and we allow each text to speak for itself and then read, and then, you know, read them together, then, then we will, we do, we get a full doctrine of what it means to stand justified before God. But I just think we don't, we're not under pressure to truck all that into every text that we preach from. You know, especially, especially at the risk, especially at the risk of doing something like leading people to believe or to think that somehow being forgiven is just inadequate. I mean, it's good, but, you know, it's only forgiveness. We don't ever want anybody to leave having heard us speak where they walk away thinking something like, well, it's just forgiveness. It's only forgiveness. Right? We want people to go away thinking, man, in Christ, my sins are forgiven. All those things that I've done, all those things that I've thought about, all those things that I, that I continue to wrestle with, God has forgiven those things and accepts me as though I had never done them. Because in his sight, I have never done them because I have Christ's righteousness. I'm forgiven. And we need to emphasize that. And we can emphasize that. And then we can, in other, you know, at other times we can emphasize this, this, this idea that we stand before God as those who have completed and done everything that he requires and you know, in all of his commands. Fulfilled. Because that's really what it means, right? For God to count us righteous, he counts us as sinless and also as those who stand before him. As, and what's it mean to be righteous? I'll talk about that in a, in a few minutes in the next session. It means that you've done everything that counts for righteousness. That's who a righteous person is. A righteous person is somebody who does righteousness. And you get counted as that. So I just wanted to begin here. We still have some time for questions. I just want to begin here, kind of lay the groundwork for this, and then we'll, I'll connect it to Romans 5. I know it kind of went really fast in this one, but I kind of just wanted to make sure we, so we could lay the groundwork for this. Um, but I'm happy now. We have, I think, uh, 15 minutes or so. have been going for a while now uh, for, for questions.